Welcome to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group's Thursday Night Alcoholics and God Speaker Step Series. Okay, I'm going to have Ryan tell us our joke. My name is Ryan. Hi. Um, all right, stop me if you heard it. All right, Guy and his wife are... Thank you. Have a great night. No, I'm kidding. Uh, guy and his wife are driving down the street one night, and they get pulled over by the cops. Uh, cop walks up to the window. Guy rolls down the window, and the cop's like, do you know why I pulled you over? And the wife leans over, and she's like, oh, well, it's probably because he was going 15 miles over the speed limit. I told him to slow down, but does he ever listen to me? Guy's like, will you shut up? So the cop's like, no, that's not why I pulled, pulled you over. And then the wife leans over again. She's like, oh, it's probably because of his broken taillight. I told him to get it fixed six months ago, but he didn't listen to me. Guy looks at his wife again. He's like, would you shut the heck up? Cop's like, ma'am, does he always speak to you like this? And she says, not nah, only when he's drunk. <laughs> I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Catherine. Thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start our two-minute meditation, so please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that make noise that might or will distract others. Take this time to get connected to God, let the craziness of the day drift away, and ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. Is everybody ready? Okay, enjoy your time with God.
we have the fog light prayer on the screen. God. There is a solution from the big book, page 17. The tremendous fact for everyone is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. I've asked James to reach... Read, sorry, to read Appendix 2, Spiritual Experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one, so it's kind of important to know what one is. My name is James. I'm a recovering alcoholic and addict. Yes. The term spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations through frequent and by no means the rule Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the differences long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource which they presently identify with their own conceptions of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is this essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problem in the light of our experience can recover provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, so set your planes to airplane or meeting mode or just turn them off. Okay, so this week, um, I'm going to introduce our speaker. We have um, a new speaker coming in right now who's filling in for Pat. Uh, His name is Ian, 
and he's coming to us from Miami, and I think he is going to have a great message on step two. Let's welcome Ian. I'm a little nervous here, you know. I, um, I'm good. The first time I've ever had a microphone on my ear like this, so it's a little bit different for me. Oh my God, um, scared me. I've been sober since oh August 4th of 1984. 34 years. And, and I don't say that so much for the applause or anything else, but just to show that it works. You know, it hasn't always been easy going. Tell you a little bit about me in the, you know, the past. It was, uh, I grew up in Miami. I was born in New York City. I grew up in Miami. My dad left when I was very young. And my mom and my grandparents raised me. I was a type of person that your mother warned you about. Um, I got involved, being in Miami, I got involved heavily into the dry goods that were running around down here. And I didn't think that anything was wrong with that. My life was full of a lot of money, a lot of prestige, a lot of ego, being a big shot. I ended up, and to make things so short so I can get into where God's involved in this, I've been shot, I've been stabbed, I've been beat up. I spent three and a half years in prison, started out with a three-year sentence and got two more years while I was in there for stabbing somebody. Um, I got out of prison, and the only thing that changed was the, the trees got taller, and the people I hung out with changed their names, that's all, because everybody that I used to hang out with had either gone to prison, were dead, or disappeared. For the next three years, I was a year and a half on parole, a year and a half on probation after that. I was in and out of trouble with the law for the, while I was on parole. Got caught three different times under two different aliases, and the third time they got a hold of me. And then when they went for the judge, the judge asked me what I wanted to do. I could either go back to prison or I'd go to rehab. And, you know, this was God talking through this judge, because this judge was a known judge to put people away for a long time. I uh, took me a minute to think about it. See, I knew what was going on in prison. I knew how to handle it. I knew what to do. I knew what I had to do. I knew what the outcome was going to be. I knew what I would do. The rehab was totally new. And there was only one reason that I chose the rehab. There were women there. Because there damn sure weren't any women in prison, and those that looked like them didn't have the same equipment. <laughs> um, you know, I got there. I got to the rehab. And after they did the, the interview, like, you know, I'm sure that some of you have been through rehabs and stuff like that. And they go through this intake interview. And I saw this girl sitting on the, it was an old motel. And I saw this girl sitting on the, one of the steps, and she had socks on her hands. And the first thing I thought of, what kind of Disney World am I in? You know, and I didn't realize that God had been going, working in my life through all this, given putting the judge in front of me, getting, putting me in this rehab and allowing me to take this rehab instead of going back to prison. Because chances are if I had gone back to prison, I'd either be dead or in jail for the rest of my life at this point in time in my life. I'm, uh, I'm 60 years old, and I figured I would be dead by 30 when I, when I was out there run, ripping and running. The, uh, I was there two months in this rehab, and people were crazy, and there was 
We were scrubbing the floor with toothbrushes, and I didn't understand why the hell we were doing all this stuff. And, you know, today I understand that that's because they're trying to get a little bit of humility, humility in me. Trying to get me a little bit humble, break down this ego and how tough I thought I was. And I was there a couple months, and I was ready to leave. This was not a lockdown facility. This was a place where I could have walked out anytime I wanted. And there was a guy there named Tony. He was about six foot four, six foot five, about six foot five across. Big bushy beard, tattoo sleeves, every bit the biker that you see on TV, the stereotype biker that you see on TV. And he sat me in his office for two hours. And I finally found somebody that felt like I felt, been where I'd been, and done what I had done. I felt worthless. I felt like nobody cared about me. I didn't think I cared about anybody else. I didn't think anybody loved me. I didn't think my mom loved me, and I thought I would be better off leaving her and leaving my grandparents and not having them not having me in their life anymore. See, remember, I was one of those real, really bad kids. At 16 years old, I had stolen her car and went to Mississippi with a friend of mine. And, uh, you know, these are the type of things I did. I didn't care about other people. I didn't want to look at other people. I didn't think about other people. Girlfriends were just there for one thing on one thing only, and I didn't care what they thought. Well, I stayed in this rehab, and I finally decided to change just a little bit. You know, and this is God. God's talk working through me through this guy that who I met several. I found out several years later had committed suicide for whatever reasons he had because I had lost contact with him. But God worked through him for, to get me to stay, to help me believe. And a little bit of recovery could have happened for me. And I went to the rehab, and I was going to, there's meetings coming into the rehab, and I really didn't remember anybody that spoke at the rehab. I do, I, we did go to a meeting, and some of you may know it, uh, the Little River Club. This was two moves ago in Miami. It was right next to a bait shop. You outside the bait, outside it smelled like puke and piss, and just like the bars that I hung out with at the, at the end of my drinking career. So I felt right at home. There were fights in, the, in there, and people were from everywhere, from park place to park bench in that place. I've known people that have been homeless, that, are, that got sober and stayed there. I know people that are famous and wealthy that went there and stayed there. And they were treated all the same, which taught me something which gave God gave me a little bit of in, in, intervention there and said, you can be part of this too. And I didn't really pay attention to that as much I, as I can reflect now and see it. You know, when I don't know about you, but when I'm in the middle of all the chaos and in the middle of trying to get a little bit of clear clarity in my head, I didn't pay attention to what God was telling me. I didn't know God was talking to me through other people. After six months, I went to the re-entry part, and I got a job, and I started working the steps. My first sponsor was a guy named Brad, and he used to say that God's, you had to have a sword. He used to do his steps with a sword, and he said that God's at the tip of the sword, and that's where all the power is. Everything else is behind that, and that's what you had to focus on, what God has in store for me. You know, the first step admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. I didn't think I had a problem. Everybody else did. 
the judge, the cop that pulled me over, the girlfriend, my mom, everybody else's problem. It wasn't my problem. Because, see, I didn't understand that because everybody that I had hung out with at the, up to that point in time had done the same things I had done, been the same places I had been, and felt like I felt. You know, we didn't care a lot about a lot of other things. We'd all been arrested. We'd all been to jail and everything else. And when I came to find out after I was sober a little while, because I was in this rehab for a year and a half, that this second half of this first step, that my life had become unmanageable, I didn't need to drink to have an unmanageable life. I was about three years sober, and I quit going to meetings. And I was saying that miserable SOB that I was before, when I wasn't drinking, so I didn't have an outlet. And I was nasty to people. And what happened is the lights got turned off, and I'd pay, go pay the bill at the pay here to get your lights back on type of place. Same thing with the phones. I had landline then, and things like that. So my life could be unmanageable without drinking, if I don't allow, allow God into it. You know, God got involved again. I met my first wife. And I got going back to meetings again. I got another sponsor. I started working the steps again. I started becoming a better person. I went to step two, where we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And what that told me was that I was sane at one time. Now, it may have been when I was a little kid, okay, because I know damn sure it wasn't when I started drinking at 13 years old, and probably years before that. And, you know, uh, in saying that, I don't know how anybody else feels, but to me it doesn't matter whether I was born an alcoholic, whether it's in the DNA, or whether it's anything else. I only became an alcoholic because I drank, way in excess. And it really doesn't matter why I drank, or who I drank to, or anything else. I drank because God didn't, wasn't in my life. And I worked the step, step two and came to believe that power greater than myself could restore me to sanity and to help work me out a little bit. And it didn't occur to me that God was really working again in my life. Because he worked slowly in my life. I didn't see the changes going on in my life. And went to step three, where we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Well, when I first read that step, and for a long time, I left that part out, the care of. And I thought I had to turn my will and my life over to God. And I was going to go through the, through the airports with the little Hare Krishnas, with the thimbles, 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 whatever they call them. And, you know, pre preaching all day long and singing songs. Come to find out that's not what it's all about at all. And today God has told me, and I believe for a fact, that what this is doing is God's going to do for me what I cannot do for myself. But he's not going to do for me what I can do for myself. He's going to close doors on me for whatever reasons. I, I was at a job, and just to give you an example, I was at a job for an international company, large international company for five years, and the door closed on that for whatever reasons, and I didn't have a job to go to. I had two weeks vacation, and I had to put together my resume. And I went to a friend of mine that owned a business. He bought, let me borrow his copy, and I made a bunch of copies. And I had to go out and do the footwork and, and apply at a whole bunch of different places. And, you know, somewhere in there, and talking to the spo my sponsor at the time, told me not to take the first job that was offered, but tell him that you'll think about their offer. And, you know, wait, wait a week, at least a week, week and a half, and see what happens. And what happened was, I ended up the job that I'm at now. 
It wasn't the first place I applied for. It wasn't the first job that was offered to me. And I've been at that job now for 24 years. I'm a high school dropout. I have a GED. I have no college education or anything else. And here I've got VPs of this company. And this is a multi-billion dollar company, privately owned company. And the VPs and everything are asking me about decisions that need to be made with million-dollar machines. Um, I work for the heavy equipment industry, and I'm responsible for 13 machines and the life of those machines and keeping them up and running. So it's a lot of responsibility. And God allowed this to me because I worked these steps. And that's all. And as things happen and as things occur in my life, my first wife and I didn't get along. We ended up breaking up. At one time she said she wanted half my 401k. And somewhere in there I realized that I don't have to react right away. I don't have to tell her what I thought right away when she said that. I kept my mouth shut. And I went and talked to somebody about it. See, the program tells me that no matter what's going on in my life, I may not always have the right answers right at my fingertips and right in my head. And I need to talk to somebody. Because I don't hear God through the airs through speaking without anything there. The only time I've ever heard anything talking about me going over the air was when I walked into a CVS and I think I was in Georgia, and they said security aisle three. Um, you know, and what my sponsor and what my sponsor and what somebody else told me was, I can ask my, my, that wife of mine for half of her 401k. Now she had a whole lot more money in hers than I had in mine. And as soon as I brought that up, she never mentioned that word again. And, you know, so that's what I've learned, to ask questions, to talk to people. God's put people in my life for a reason. I don't know what that reason is all the time, you know. People have changed in my life over the years. I've had different friends come in and out of my life over the years. I went to step four, where we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Now, I've been a mechanic all my life, so in, in my head, the way that that works is, is you're, I'm buying a basket case motorcycle, let's say. And i got to go through all these parts and see what's good, what needs to be refurbished, and what needs to be replaced. So I'm doing this inventory. And, you know, I'm putting down in this inventory all these people that I'm pissed off about, the sexual relations that I had with people, how I treated people why I was upset with them. And in that fourth column, which they tell us in the big book, I had to put my portion of it, what I did. And man, I didn't want to do that. Because I don't know very many people that want to look that deep into themselves, especially when they're first starting recovery. And you know, when I did that, I realized that I had a big play in this. You know, it's kind of like a dominoes. The last thing may happen that Joe pissed me off because of something he did. But if I go far enough back in the history with Joe, I did something to start all this stuff. And that domino hit the next one and hit the next one. And it may be a hundred dominoes later before I'm pissed off at Joe because of something he did to me. And I took this list and I sat down with my sponsor. And he did to me what I do to other other people now, my sponsees now. He sat down with a chair and he put a third chair there and had God in, in there, in that room with us. And we were talking about the fifth step. And there was those things that I wasn't going to tell him. I wasn't going to tell anybody. 
Um, some of the things that I had done are, were still uh, within the statute of limitations, so I had to be very careful. Um, and what my sponsor told me is if, there, if anything that I had to say was under the statute of limitations, go hire a lawyer that's in the program. And that's what I did for those things because I had to get them out. And I found out that my sponsor had done most of the things that I had done, that I wasn't that different. And I've come to find out today that no matter what I've done in my life, no matter what I'm going on in my life, no matter what's happened in my life, sponsee's life, or other people's lives, if there's a name for it, somebody else has done it. Guaranteed. You know, and so what I have to remember, when, especially when I'm in meetings, and I'm listening to people talk, and about the things that they've gone through in their life, what I have to realize is that pay attention and see what they've been through. Because somebody may ask me something about how do they handle this. And I was, uh, I'll give you an example, I was 15 years sober. My mom was in and out of the hospital for a congestive heart failure. She'd feel bad, she'd check herself into the hospital, she'd feel better, and she'd check herself out against medical advice. And about the fourth time she was in there, they had her under an induced coma. And the nurses at the time, me and my brother went down there, and there's a whole big story on my brother too, which you'll probably hear tonight. Um, me and my brother were down there, and we had to make a decision on what we were going to do. Because we didn't know that she was under an induced coma. We decided, we thought we had to make decisions on whether or not to keep her alive for how long. And we decided to do it for 48 hours, I think it was. And my, I left there. I had left my first wife. I had divorced my first wife at that point. I was going out with my current wife. She was my girlfriend at the time. And uh, I drove from the hospital to where she worked, and she asked me a question. If there's any place in this world where you'd like to be right now, where would that be? And instantly out of my mouth became a meeting. And I had a home group, and it's important to have a home group, because this way people get to know you. People get to know who you are, they realize who you are, they talk to you, and you can open up to other people at that point at the same time. And I walked into this fight, and it was just a little bit before 5.30. I walked into the meeting. I definitely did 8.30 meetings, and they instantly knew something was wrong. They didn't know what, but they instantly knew something was wrong. And this was one of those meetings, and I'm sure most of you have been to them, where they really didn't have anybody to speak, so they, whoever was in there at the time, they asked you to speak, and I was asked to speak. And I talked about what was going on with me right then, right there. And how do I handle this? How do I make it okay do a DNR, a do not resuscitate on my mom. And that's a tough choice. That's a tough, tough decision. I don't, I don't put that on anybody. I don't hope nobody else has to ever do that. And there was a guy in that meeting I had met the night before, said hi, because I tried to say hi to the newcomers in my meeting. And he was there and he talked about how he had to make that decision for both of his parents. Like I said, people are put in my life and I don't know what they're putting there for. And after the meeting, I talked to him a little bit more in depth about it. And I realized that I was doing, and that my decisions had to be based on what my mom would want, not what I would want. Well, she came out of it and when I found out she was, she was there in an induced coma, and she died on New Year's Eve that day, that, that couple months later. And Allie and I were going to go to a friend of ours house who was having a New Year's Eve party. And sober person and his and his wife. We went there, and I had a commitment to speak at three o'clock in the morning. Um, and we went to that party. We went to go keep that commitment at three o'clock in the morning. And this couple, this whose party we were at, came to that meeting. 
Now, I don't know. No one ever told me, but I think they knew because of what I was going through. They came there to support me because that's what friends do in this program. That's how God works in this program. He puts people in your lives to help you get through the tough times. He puts people in our lives to help get through the good times as well, no matter what they may be. And I talked about what I was going through and the decisions I had made that my mom had died and everything else. And there was a guy in that meeting who heard what I had done and heard about the fact that I had I spoke right when I was going through all that crap a couple months before and what had happened. And come to find out a month later, a couple months later, something like that, he had the same thing happen in his life. He had something go down in his life that he that was bothering him and he upsetting him and he didn't know what to do and he went to the meeting and he spoke about it. And that's what we've learned to do in this, in, this, in this program. We've learned to share our experience, strength, and hope. What we do to get over whatever we're going through. You know, and, and I got to the sixth step where I looked at my shortcomings. And I was ready to have God remove all these defects of character, excuse me. And in my opinion, defects of character are like flaws in a diamond. I can polish it. God can polish this diamond for me, just like a jeweler will polish your diamond. And all these flaws don't go away, because if they went away, I'd never get angry again. I would never get jealous again. I'd never get envious again. All those character defects and these shortcomings that you hear about, none of those would happen to me if, I, if they all went away. But they do come back. What I can do is take that diamond, take that polishing that God's given me, and I can turn it so that piece that isn't that has that defect doesn't act out as much anymore. And come the sixth and the seventh step where our shortcomings, and to me shortcomings is where I just don't put enough effort into doing whatever I want to do. The meaning of sin, according to my understanding and talking to people in this program, is that it's missing the mark. We're aiming at a target with this bow and arrow. And we're trying to hit this bullseye. And our amount of sin is how far off we are from that target. And we try to get better and better every day and every, all this other time. And when we're short, our shortcomings especially is where we just don't pull that bow out far enough to get that hour to reach the target. That's the way that I see it and I understand it. And I came to, you know, in, in working the fifth step, I found out that I, was, I wasn't the person I thought I was. I was a person that I didn't care about. I was a person that I thought was a rotten person, not really a man, didn't do what he did, didn't do what he said, didn't stand by his word. And the six and seven steps allowed me to help to start doing that, to become a different person. It changed who I was to somebody else. And you know, while I'm in the middle of it, I didn't see that change. Other people pointed it out to me. I've been a couple years sober by this time. I finally got a key to my mom, my grandparents' house. You know, that was a big deal to me because they didn't want nothing to do with me like most people. Because here I thought, oh, you know, I'm sober for a year and a half, two years, and look how great I am. Well, they're looking back at the other 13 years of when I was drinking and drugging and ripping and running and doing everything that I had done and comparing it. And so two years was nothing to them because they didn't trust me still. And when I got that key after the two years, it meant a whole lot to me. It meant that I had built up a little tiny bit of trust in them. That would work. 
And I went to the eighth step where I had made a list of all the people I had harmed, including companies, businesses. There's people that I don't know who they are. Houses I broke into that I don't know whose house it was. People that I bumped into that I don't know who they were. People I ripped off that I don't know who they are. And how did that step, how did that list start? I took the four-step list that I had that I started with, and I started with that. And I added to it. And I became willing to make amends to all these people. And, you know, amends are not making it okay and saying, I'm sorry. It's making it okay and trying to, re, to make things right what I had damaged. And there's a story about Johnny and his fence. And his, he came home from school and he was mad. And his dad said, every time you're mad, put a nail in the fence, in this wooden fence out back. And he got mad, and he'd go put a nail in the fence. He'd put two nails in the fence some days and three nails some days. And he got tired of putting nails in the fence, so he decided that he's not going to get mad anymore. And one day he didn't get mad. And he asked his dad, 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 I didn't get mad. And dad says, okay, every day that you're not mad, take a nail out of that fence. And so he did. And nails went in, and nails came out, and over a few months, all the nails were gone. And Dad said, and Johnny said, look, Dad, all the nails are gone. And Dad said, now look at the fence, Johnny, and all those holes in the fence. Those are the things and the people that we hurt. Because no matter what we did, we can never make it 100% back to where it was. We can try. We can do better. Some of these amends are lifelong events. We actually started it when we first got sober. At least I did. Where I wasn't creating any more havoc in people's lives. I wasn't doing the illegal things. I wasn't stealing the gold out of people's teeth so I could get what I had to get. I was becoming a better person. God was in my life. I had to talk about him for a long time before I really admitted it. And you know, my... Growing up, my understanding of God, I didn't really have a religious background, no organized religion. And uh, I like to think I was Jewish. I know my grandparents and my mom were Jewish. I also have a Scottish background, so I was Presbyterian too. And my mom used to say I used to mix the two words together, and I don't know how the hell I did it, but, you know, I was one of those persons. But I didn't really practice any religion. And I was a, I read a book by Robert Heinlein called J.O.B., A Comedy of Justice. I don't know how many of you are into science fiction and stuff like that. I'm still big into it. And what they, what it said, what it was about was about how the gods, had, in the book it was gods, had created the earth and man as a toy. And they got tired of the game, and so we were just on our own. And that's how I felt. I felt that God had abandoned me. What I come to find out is that God didn't abandon me, and he didn't close the door on me. I closed the door on him. And I can do that very easily, anytime. So here I am making amends to people, and I had to ask my sponsor, how do I make amends? What do I do? You know, I know you all probably heard about, it's like a hand grenade, and the people that are real close to us get destroyed. Family, close friends, we wreck havoc in their lives. I did. People that were a little bit further away, no, not close friends, but friends and people that we associated with daily. We hurt them really bad. And this outside ring, which is everybody else that we ever came in contact with, whether we knew their name or not, and we hurt them. 
And I had to make amends to all these people. And you know, one of the amends I had to make was to my grandfather. By this time, my grandfather had been, had a couple of heart attacks, had a couple of strokes. He couldn't write. He could type with only one hand. And I wrote him a letter about how I was sorry for what I had done and what I could do to make it better. And, I'm, you know, I was apologized and tried to make it right what I had done because I couldn't do it face-to-face with him for whatever reason. I didn't have the balls to do it. I didn't have the guts to do it. I didn't have the to stand up to him. And he wrote a letter back. He typed the letter back. Now, remember, my grandfather was not a typer. This was in typewriters. This was before computers. So he's typing with one finger. And he typed this letter back to me, and he signed the letter. Now, he's right-handed. He grew up right-handed and everything else, and he, his right hand he couldn't use. So he signed it with his left hand about how he realizes that it was the alcohol and the drugs in my life that had caused me to do a lot of the things I had done. And that he was proud of me for what I had done since I got sober and the things that I had been doing, and that he loved me. And I got to know that man better than I ever knew him in my life. Come to find out that he had done a lot of the things that I had done. He grew up in the Depression. He was stealing coal out of the, out of the rail cars in New York City so he could have heat in his house. He stole the food that his, so this family could eat. He was in his teens. So he wasn't above what I had done. He knew what I had done. And you know, I didn't realize it when I first got sober or growing up. My grandfather worked for a uniform company. And we used to have more booze in our house than anybody else. So he was all broken. He delivered to a, uh, National Wine and Liquors. And when they broke a case, they couldn't sell it, so they gave the rest of the bottles away. We had collector bottles. If I had some of those bottles today, I wouldn't have to work. Um, you know, I got to know what he had done. We became good friends. We went places that he went. These are the amends that I had to make to him to be a friend of his, to be a good grandson. The same thing with my grandfather, grandmother. I had to be a good grandson to my grandmother. Do things with her. Talk it over with her. My mom and I, up until the day she died, I never got along with my mom. I never really liked my mom. Um, my mom was a very negative person right up until the day she died. Her bedroom was black with drawn curtains. She wore a necklace that said, number one bitch. <laughs> On the back of her car had a sticker that said, evil, wicked, mean, and nasty. At one time on the front of her car, she had a license plate that had four letters on it. Q, 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 Q. You can figure out what that is all by yourself or talk to me after the meeting and I'll explain it to you. Um, so even though I didn't like her, I did still love her and I still did things for her. I still went over, I still said hi to her. Right up until the day she died. Um, and I tried to do what was right. You know, and, and one of the things that happened when uh, when my mom died, a f- couple days later, I'd been taking the days off, the half of the day off at work to help clean up the house so it didn't look like my mom was there. Was, I was living in another house. My grandmother, and my brother were living in this house, and my brother had gone to jail, and I uh, I went over to see my grandmother, and he called and he wanted me to bail him out, and I told him no. And he asked Grandma if he wanted to know if Grandma had money to bail him out. And I said, no, he's just going to have to sit there. 
And the next day he called. They released him on his own reconnaissance. I went and picked him up. Um, and he had his girlfriend over there. And I'm cleaning up the room and trying to straighten things out. My brother's yelling at my girlfriend. Now remember, I'm 15 years sober. I'm still, you know, I've got a little bit of going on in my life. I'm doing pretty good, you know. And uh, my brother's yelling at his girlfriend. And I'm staying out of it. And he said something about planting the keys in her forehead. And I'm trying to stay out of it. I'm getting upset because I don't believe in that anymore. You know, I'd come to realize that, you know, I had to treat women the same way that I wanted to be treated. And my grandmother came to me and told me that I had to break that up before it got even worse. And I went to my brother and I told him to shut up and to quit yelling at her. And he said something. The next thing I know, I blackened his eye and I decked him. So, you know, just because I've got 15 years sober doesn't mean that that person is not still in me. Remember, I'm talking about those defects of character, that diamond, that flaw that's still there. It can come out in a heartbeat. And that's what happened. I told his girlfriend to leave, and she left. And, you know, to make that story, that's a short, short version of that story. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of things happened. My brother used my name. got something like 20 tickets in my name. Between down, he had moved to Alabama by this time with my grandmother. Um, he got 20 tickets down here. I'd gone to out on vacation and came back and applied for my driver, my tag to get renewed, and they said my license was suspended. And a whole bunch of things happened with that. And I finally got that straightened out. It cost me a bunch of money, it cost me a bunch of time, and I was pissed at my brother for many, many years. We had gone to, my wife and I had gone to, we're going to the International Convention in San Antonio. We were driving out there. We got pulled over in Fort Walton Beach for speeding. I was keeping up with traffic, I think. But, you know, maybe I was speeding. Who knows? Anyways, we got pulled over. And the first cop stopped me, talked to me, had me get out of the car. For any kind of ticket I've ever had, I've never had to be pulled out of the car. Never been taken out of the car. Never been asked to be removed from the car. And I've gotten plenty of tickets. He asked me to step out of the car. I was in a motorcycle club at that time, a sober motorcycle club, been in there for a while, and uh, we were on the FBI watch list. You know, we, we weren't doing anything illegal, but because we were on a motorcycle club, we were one of those organizations that they watch. And they went over to my wife, and they were talking to my wife separately. They'd, I'd never seen any, any cop ever go to the passenger in the vehicle and ask for their ID and question them. We were there for a little while, and then a second cop showed up, which was no big deal. And then a third cop showed up, and they let me sit back in the car, and the fourth cop showed up. And I'm sitting there going, what the hell is going on? And then another cop, the cop came back to my driver's door and says, would you please step out of the car? I figure I'm going to jail. I don't know what I did. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's happening, because I haven't done anything that could send me to jail. And I gave stuff to my wife, and I got out of the car. At this point, another cop at FHP, Florida Highway Patrol, had shown up, and they wanted to run my prints over the air. So they ran my prints. They wanted to make sure I wasn't my brother. For some reason, they associated with my brother and all this other stuff, and I had put a flag on my license to look for second ID because of what my brother had done. And the cop, the first cop that pulled me over says, so when's the last time you saw your brother? And I go, I don't know, a few years ago, and if I ever see him, I owe him a black eye. 
And the cop kind of looked, stepped back, said, wow. He says, okay, you're not him, you know, and a few other words have been said, a few other things have been said, and all this took place over an hour and a half. And I'm, you know, what the hell's going on? I'm not saying this stuff. I've learned in the program to keep my mouth shut on some things and not just run it all the time like I tend to. And he, uh, after an hour and a half, he said, I could, go. I could go. No ticket, no nothing. The computers were busy and yada, 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 whatever excuses he had. And we left, and we left out of Fort Walton Beach. I don't want to go to Fort Walton Beach again. <laughs> and you know, we're talking about amends, and for many years, I was okay with owing my brother a black eye. And I had no qualms about it. I had no issues with it. There was one time that I had to do everything over the phone because he had used my name in in, uh, Alabama. And I was getting ready to get the tags and my driver's license renewed, and I couldn't get all that renewed. And at the end of the month, I was almost ready to have it all put into my wife's name because at least that way I could put tags on the car. And uh, at the end of that, towards the end of that month, everything got cleared up. And I was so mad at my brother and hadn't talked to him in four or five years. Found out that he had gone to jail. He was in a work release or something. Talked to him once after that. And several years later, I had changed phones. My wife still had the same phone, and the hospital got a hold of her. My brother was in the hospital. And they they asked, they needed to talk to me, and I called because I'm the only blood relative left. He hadn't gotten married, evidently. And come to find out that he's in the hospital for chronic alcoholism, untreated diabetes. He had an infection, and they were doing skin grafts, and he wasn't coming out of the coma. And he'd come in and out, every once in a while he'd come out of it. They had to trach him three different times, and they needed me to make a decision on how to do a DNR. And by this time, I had already talked to my, my grandmother, having been in Alabama several years earlier than that, she had she got a she went into a coma and I had to do a DNR on her. Talked to the doctors. I learned how to ask the questions. How to ask things. God had taught me through other people how to ask questions. I'd gotten a little bit of humbleness in me, a little bit of humility to where I didn't know everything. And uh I made a decision on her. She was ninety years old. We had, had a, my wife and I had had been there just a few couple months before that and did whatever she wanted to do. And the girl that she was living with, who was my brother's girlfriend from 10 years before that, and it's a whole big long story, which should have never happened anyways, but um, they were telling us that he, she couldn't do this and she couldn't do anything and she couldn't eat anything. And you know, we took her out and whatever she wanted to do, she could do as long as she was with me. She's 90 years old. What the hell difference does it matter if she eats a fried chicken? And we went to a museum that she wanted to go to. Grandma Moses was the the, the uh, artist that was being portrayed there. Beautiful work. We sat through videos of her. My grandmother had a great time. That was the last time I saw her. And I had to do a DNR on her before that, just a couple months later. And she passed away in her sleep. Because I asked the question, then, if I did not do this, what would happen? And what they had told me was that they may break ribs trying to revive her. 
And at 90 years old, I don't think my grandmother could have handled broken ribs. And I talked to her, and she was okay with her God. And I did what was right for her. Well, when the doctors called me about my brother, this feeling that I had to blacken his eye went away. I didn't even think about that. I talked to the doctor and I talked to the nurses about what was going on. I asked the questions. And I made decisions. I had to do a DNR on my brother. This was last year. About what was right for him. And because the infection wasn't going away, the skin grass didn't heal it. It was uh, in a very bad place where you'd gotten this infection. And, you know, it had been going on for a long time. And because of his drinking and everything else that he was doing, it was really, really blood infections and everything else that had gone on. And when they passed, when he passed away, you know, it hurt. I felt bad for all this. But God had allowed me somehow to make amends to him in that way. And I didn't realize it at that second in time until after everything was done. That that's what God did. He made it okay. And I did what was right by him. And you know, now here it is. I'm in the 10th step. How much time I got? I got a little bit of time. Good. Um, we're in the 10th step where we, make, where we continue to take inventory. At this point in time, it tells us in the big book that we're in the realm of the spirit. Which means we've got this contact with God of some sort. And we're trying to do what's right by God, in God's eyes. And we still do things that are screwed up. You know, I'm, I'm working for this company, this billion dollar company that I work for now. And I made a mistake, a $30,000 mistake on a job. And what did I have to do? I had to admit it. I went to my boss, once I figured out what happened, and I said, this is what happened. The job got out of control. Some things, were, parts were put in that didn't need to be put in, but we cannot build a customer for this. And I got in trouble over it. I expected to. But you know something? Because I was truthful, because I went to my boss before they had to do an investigation, things weren't as bad as they could be. I'm still working there, so it couldn't have been that bad. These are the things that I do today. My wife and I, we have arguments. There's been times that she goes, you know, when you do this, and you know, and I do a lot of things wrong, and I'm not an angel by no means. And I said, okay, that's my fault. What can I do to do it better? That's what I do today. I try to be better today than I was yesterday. And that's all we can do in our lives. Is just try to be a little bit better than we were. And the 11th step, where we continue to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him. Again, it says, as we understood Him, which means my God is different than yours. I still don't go to any kind of organized religion. I've tried it. This program has given me a spiritual awakening that's beyond my wildest dreams. And I wake up in the morning, and I thank God, and I ask Him, and I look at the, at the day coming up and what i got to do that day 
Most of the time I do the things that I got to do, except on the weekends I try to goof off. You know, sometimes I get the things done that I need to do. And at the end of the day, I look over the day again, like I did in the 10th step. And where could I be better? Is all the things that I did over that day bad? No. Do I look at all just the immoral stuff that I did, the wrongs that I did? No, I look at the good things too. But the one thing I ask myself is, can I do this right thing better the next time? Where did that come from? Here, I'm a, here I am, a guy that ran around when I was out there ripping and running with people that all they had were nicknames. That if you snitched on somebody, you were probably dead. That you didn't say anything, admit anything, or ask for help. And here I am looking for God to help me, admitting my mistakes and trying to look at what I could do better when I do the right thing. And we, you know, come to the 12 step, which tells us that there's only one reason to do the steps, and that's to have a spiritual awakening, have as the result of these steps. I hear people in the meeting, they change that to a result. It's not a result, it is the result. The only reason we do these steps is to have this spiritual awakening. It says alcohol one time in the steps, and it says, talks about God, Him, higher power, spiritual being, or whatever. What, eight times in the steps? That tells me that that's more important than alcohol. And you know, I take this 12-step and I do, and I practice these principles in all my affairs. Some days better than others. I take meetings into. I have been, or up until recently, I was taking the meetings into rehab, trying to give back a little bit what I had been given so graciously given. This gift of sobriety that I did not earn, that God gave me freely. All I had to do was open up myself to Him and open the doors and quit closing them on in like I used to. I do the things that I'm asked to do. I help people that I'm asked to help. Whether they're sober people, whether they're drunk people, or whether they're just normies, whatever the hell a normie is. I still don't understand that, but I got a lot of friends that are normal out there. And you know, in running in the motorcycle clubs like I have, I knew them all over South Florida. I know the club I was in was a nationwide club. I know a lot of one percenters out there, and it's amazing how many of them are good people. See, we unfortunately we hear things about other people, and we believe the stereotype. And what's the stereotype of an alcoholic? A stumbling drunk underneath a park bench or underneath a bridge, drinking out of a paper bag? That's not what most of us were like. I was never. I, I was on. I was homeless for a little while but I didn't even think about getting sober then that was a long time before I got sober I had a job I had a house to live in wasn't my house but somebody else's house but I had a house to live in you know so we have to take those stereotypes out of our visions and try to help people no matter what they are and who they are and that's what I've learned to do today my life today is very good I just bought my second motorcycle. I just sold my first one that had 93,000 miles on it. 
I've been all over the East Coast of the United States. I've got friends today that I went to one of the chapters of the club I was in. Two of the guys, they were arguing about whose house I was going to stay in because I'm a good friend to both of them. Before I got sober, people were turning off the lights to their house to make sure I didn't come near it. I'm out of that club now, and I've still got very good friends in that club. I still got people that I love. The, the, the cell phone I have, I must have a hundred numbers that I can call at three o'clock in the morning and say, I need to talk. And they'll meet me at Denny's and have coffee with me when they have to go to work at six o'clock in the morning. And I will do the same thing for them. I didn't have that. When I was out there ripping and running, all we wanted to do was rip and run. There was not talking about, oh, you know, I feel depressed because of this. Or I feel bad because of this. Or can you, can you believe what I did? You didn't say that to Scrappy. You know? He didn't want to hear that crap. You didn't admit weakness. And I've come to find out, and God has shown me in this program, that those things that I thought were the worst things in my life became my biggest assets. Because I can help people that nobody else can help. Just like each and every one of you can. There's people in this program that I don't like. And I ain't going to lie to nobody about it. But you know something? That's okay. I have to respect them for their sobriety. Because they're going to be able to help people that I cannot help. And that's what this is about. We have come to believe that our, well, our primary purpose is to serve God and help others. We come third. And that's where I'm at today. I try to do the right thing. I fall short, but I'm better today than I was yesterday. Thank you. That was a great message. Let's thank Ian one more time. Ryan for the secretary report. Hi, my name is Ryan. I'm a recovered alcoholic secretary. Um, in keeping with the seventh tradition, uh, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going around. And I've asked Ashley to read the recovered statement. We read this notice to explain why many people in this group identify as recovered rather than recovering and what it exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. Alcoholic named Ashley. Hey, Ashley. We are not cured of alcoholism, recovered but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime, but we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in the body. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Um, 1940s uh, style big book sponsorship from forward to the second edition of Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 
50% got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses. And among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above uh, suggest 75% success rate. Um, can I see a show of hands of recovered alcoholics? Is there anyone here that needs a sponsor? If you could raise your hand. Not today. Everybody needs a sponsor. Oh, we've got someone in the back. Could you just stand up real quick? Uh, so if you guys can see her after this, we need some women to help her attack the guy. Um, please join us on Monday nights, uh, Big Book Study Meeting, where the Big Book comes alive. Uh, we have fellowship starting at 6.30, and then the Big Book Study starts at 7.15. Uh, we also have CDs, mugs, large print big books, uh, little red books, and big book dictionaries for sale in the back. Um, and then we have some other announcements. Uh, we got Broward County Intergroup. Uh, there's some office hours down there and some ways to get in contact with them. You can get some literature, you can get medallions, they got all kinds of stuff. Um, we also have some volunteer opportunities. Um, AA's got talent. You might want to start practicing now. It's coming up in February. Uh, we got gratitude dinner planning. Uh, gratitude dinner date is Friday, November 2nd, uh, and this year's theme is the best is yet to come. Uh, we also have the 43rd annual Broward County Intergroup Picnic. Uh, about the picnic, we do have tickets available tonight. Uh, you can see Fred, you can see Joe, or you can see Heather uh, if you want to get tickets. Uh, we're, so they're $8 a piece, but tonight, if you buy two, you get them for 15 If you buy three, you get them from 20 And then also, you can go through Intergroup. Uh, it's like a treatment center. You can go through Intergroup. You can get them there. Uh, they can do some special uh, pricing for, uh, I guess, like group tickets. And you can also pay with credit card through that. Um, and then we have fifth annual gratitude days. Um, lots of speakers. That's going to be on Friday, November 9th, Saturday, November 10th, and Sunday, November 11th. And that's it. Um, we meet every Thursday starting promptly at 7.15. And we ask that you be courteous and ready to begin at the sound of the bells. Um, also, uh, we do have smoking buckets set up down at the end here. Uh, so if you could just wait till you get down there to smoke or vape. Uh, they do have the Boy Scouts next door, so we don't want them bumming all your smokes. So just go down there. You shouldn't have a problem. All right. Uh, thank you very much. I'll see you next week. Okay. Um, and if you want to thank Ian, um, going to be down the center aisle. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father,